learning much inclined, who went to see an elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but this elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and fell about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mightily plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough this elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, Even the blindest man can tell this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So often theological wars the disputants I ween rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. The story of the blind man, the elephant, familiar story perhaps to many of you all. It's an illustration of my purpose in preaching the overview series. You know, generally, Rock Valley Bible Church, we are verse-by-verse people digging into the minutia of God's Word. And we will do that again in the fall. I think mid-September, as I calculated things out, we'll be looking at the book of Hebrews And I'm very excited about that. But this summer, we're looking at the big picture of the Bible. Uh, We're looking at the the broad scope. We're looking at the elephant, if you will, so that when we see um, his broadside, we'll see, oh, that's a a wall. But that's a wall. It's an elephant. It's not a wall. When we feel the tusk, we see it's a tusk of an elephant. It's not a spear. And when we see the trunk, the elephant, we say, oh, that's not a snake. It's a trunk of the elephant. And so we can see how all the parts fit towards the whole. And what we've done is taken each stage of history each week. These stages aren't new and original to me. They are uh, based upon his book, Max Andrews, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Uh, He put these stages, the picture is his. Uh, He put these stages um, in his book. And they're good historical stages just to cause us to think about the Bible. We've looked at the creation, the patriarchs, Exodus, the conquest, and the judges. And now we're on the sixth stage, which is what? Kingdom. And uh, we've been singing a little song each week. We're going to sing it again, all right? One of these days, I'm going to take this overhead away, so you're going to struggle a little bit, right? Twelve stages in the Bible. Let's learn them one by one. Here we go. Twelve stages in the Bible. Let's learn them one by one. Creation, patriarchs, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, Exile, return, da-da-da-da-da, silence, gospel, church, and mission. 
Right, there's the, the broad scope, but just you think through, you know, there's lots of ways you can cut up the Bible. I was talking to Darren Wiebe one time, and he said, well, you can cut it up this way, the, the, the creation, and then the fall, and then the redemption, and then future state, maybe? Consummation. You can cut it up like that. It's a good way to cut it up. We've just chosen to do this, uh, because I've, I've just tried to you know, take, take the Bible you know, kind of chunk by chunk, is what we've tried to do. And we come this morning to the kingdom stage. And let me tell you, the challenge before me is, is particularly very great. Um, in the past, I mean, we did Genesis. We did Genesis 1 through 11. That's pretty big. But we did the patriarchs. We did Genesis 12 to 50. That's pretty big. The Exodus did Exodus 1 through 17. And when we looked at Joshua, we did the whole book of Joshua. And then Judges, look at the whole book of Judges. Well, I've got 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and First Kings, and Second Kings. And First Second Chronicles tell the whole story, but we've got four books of the Bible really we are looking, looking through. So my, my task this morning is, is big. What we're going to do is really going to land once in First Samuel, once in Second Samuel, once in First Kings, and once in Second Kings. And so if you take your Bible, open up to First Samuel chapter 8. I have three points this morning. Uh, my first point this morning is the start of the kingdom. And the kingdom really starts here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, it's where the judges leave off. In fact, there's a, a transition between the two because the last of the judges installs the first of the kings. We looked last time at the judges finishing with Samson, but there was another judge after that. His name was Samuel. And um, Samuel actually installed the first king. So there's a, a natural flow between the judges and the kings. In fact, there never was a time where there weren't judges and there never was a time where there was not kings. It was, it was clear when that leadership style was transferred over. According to chapter 7, verse 15, you see Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. We find Samuel at the end of his life in, ver- in chapter 8. It came about when Samuel was old that he pointed his sons over Israel. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. It only makes sense what Samuel is trying to do. He saw the ups and downs of the judges, or the downward spiral, if you will, when, when Israel sinned and they went their own way, then God provided a judge for them. And when they had a judge, things went well for them. And then they lost a judge and things went down. And then, then he got another judge and things went up. And, and Samuel said, I see that, I understand history, and I'm going to install my sons as judges, so there's not going to be this leadership void. But there was a difficulty with that. It comes in verse 3. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. In other words, his sons weren't righteous. They weren't going to help. Unrighteous people in leadership is not a help. Proverbs 29 verse 2 says, When a wicked man rules, the people groan. And indeed, that's what took place. The people groaned. Look at verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the other nations. It's right here. The history of Israel begins a new stage in their history. They transition from the stage of the judges to the kings. The elders of Israel believe that a king is what they needed. They observed the other nations around them and reasoned, hey, all the other nations have a king and it looks like things are going well for them. 
we don't have a king and things are going poorly for us, perhaps it's a king that we need. Yes, let's, I, I think we need a king. So if you think here a bit about what they were doing, you might realize they were looking to the world for the leadership that they needed. Jesus Himself said, don't look at the world. You know the, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but you are to be different. You are to be humble, subservient, be a servant is what you are to do. And too often, Christians in Christian churches right, take their, take their lead from the world. They're more interested in business leadership manuals, pastors are, than they are in the Scriptures. And the world's definition of success is bigger and bigger and more and more people. Because that's the definition, right? Bigger profits, bigger market share, bigger gain. And so pastors do that and churches go astray. And, and we too, it's easy for us to look at the world and say, hey, that's, that's what I want to be like. But it's never right to look the way the world is going and think that's best for us because God's ways are always best for us. And this is, this is what Samuel knew. This is what Samuel said. It's, our, it's an argument here in verses 6-9. through nine. He says, God's ways are best. Don't go that way of the nations. He says, <clears throat> the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And, and what was his prayer about? God, they've, they've messed up and they want a king and I know it's bad and what should I do? How should I lead this people? And, and the Lord said to Saul, Samuel, verse 7, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they've not rejected you, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day. There again you see the, the history, the patriarchs, the Exodus, referring back to them. It says, In that they have also forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice, however. You shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. See, God knew what was going on. He knew that they were really rejecting him and not rejecting Samuel. He was assuring Samuel this is the case. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. When you share the Gospel and someone rejects it and they reject you, know that they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting God. And Samuel, as God's voice, was being comforted by the fact that God knew what was going on. God was their king, but they wanted a human king. I think they wanted a king that they could touch and see and feel. This wasn't the first time Israel rejected their God their king. In fact, in the days of Gideon, when he had, he had military victory over Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian, they said, rule over us, both you and your son and your son's son, for you've delivered us from the hand of Midian. You, Gideon, are a great ruler, so you rule over us. And Gideon at that time said, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son, for the Lord shall rule over you. And that satisfied them, I think, because Gideon continued on. And if Samuel said, no, 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 you don't want a king, I'm your judge, and, and I'll continue to, to judge you, and God is your king, that may have satisfied them. But as Samuel's days were ending, it didn't, didn't work. He was soon to die. And the divine summons here is very interesting. In verse 9, was to tell them of the procedure of the king. And so that's what he did here in verse 10, if you look. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him a king. This is the procedure of a king. You want a king? Here's what's going to take place. So Israel, he says, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. 
He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and of your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to the officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. And then you will cry out in that day because your king, whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel's trying to paint it bad. He says, you think a king is good? Let me tell you what a king is going to do for you. He's going to demand your sons to go fight in war. Maybe some of you will lose your sons in battle. He's going to take your daughters to serve him in the castle. He's going to tax the produce of your field. He's going to take your servants from you to serve him. And things will be so bad that you're going to cry out for God and God's going to turn a deaf ear. At this point, what should Israel have done? What should they have done? Repented. Said, God, you're exactly right. That's a bad idea. We don't want a king. We'll trust you. You will be our king. But despite the pleadings, the people refused to listen. That's what it says in verse 19. The people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our kings may judge us and go out before us to fight our battles. And so begins the kingdom stage in Israel. The first king, who's the first king? You all know? Saul. He's told about here in chapter 9, verse 2, is when we get our introduction from Saul. He's the son of Kish. This man Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. A choice and handsome man. Right, like some of you husbands out there. How, how many of you have a choice and handsome man for a husband? Yeah, good, good. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Yvonne, for raising your hand. <laughs> However, I don't quite meet this description. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. Okay, I might, I might meet that part of it, but not this part. From his shoulders up, he was taller than any of the people. That's not me. But this was Saul. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was a hunk. He was a man the people could follow. Tall, probably bold, strong. Israel didn't need an earthly king. They needed a heavenly king. And even when Samuel confronted them with this fact, it made little difference. They saw Saul and they said, He's our man. In fact, look in chapter 10, verse 17. When Paul is chosen publicly... We see, um, we see Samuel again warning the people. Chapter 10, verse 17, Therefore Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, right? The Exodus. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and the power of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you said, no, but set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves for the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. It's very clear, even from the start, before they chose a king, of um, what was happening, what was taking place. They were rejecting their king they needed for a king they wanted. Rejecting a king they needed 
for a king they wanted. And that is the travail of the human heart. Too often we reject what we need to get what we want. Is that not sin? One of the things that comes to my mind is the problem of debt, right? What do we need? We need fiscal responsibility to spend less than we earn. And yet, we want something, so we get what we want rather than what we need. It happens on the individual level, and sadly, it happens on the national level. There will be a payday. Israel didn't need an earthly king. They needed a heavenly king. They didn't need a human king. They needed a divine king. But they wanted a king that they could see and follow. So they had this king. The time came for them to choose a leader. God chose him by lot. Verse 20. It's interesting. It is Saul. God knew it was going to be Saul. But here's divine intervention here. Leading and guiding the people. It says here in verse 20, brought all the tribes of Israel near. Right? All of them. From Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and Gad, and Asher, Iskar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. They all were there, standing before Samuel. And he took them by lot. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken. So out of, out of all of them, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. One twelfth. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin, verse 21, near by its families. And the Matrite family was taken. Okay, So this is the, the family which Saul was. Because Matrite was the father of Kish, somewhere up the line. And then they chose Saul, a son of Kish. But when they looked for him, they could not be found. Therefore, they inquired further of the Lord, verse 22, has this man come here yet? So he said, behold, he's hiding himself behind the baggage. And again, we see Saul's not saying, yeah, I want to lead. Again, it's trembling before God and his leadership. Even that's a good, commendable quality of Saul. So they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? It's interesting. God chose the first king. Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, What? Are you reading? What does it say? Okay, let's hear it like they would say all together, right? Long live the king, right? Saul's the guy we want. Let's grab him. God directed, God chose him. People affirmed him. And so Saul installed him in chapter 12. And I want to read that for you. Chapter 12, verse 6. Samuel, this is inauguration day. Okay, this is, um, whatever, third week in January when the President of the United States gets inaugurated. Here's Samuel inaugurating the first king. <clears throat> he stands up there for the inauguration speech and he says this, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. I just hope you see how often the Exodus comes up. God's reminding, this is what God has done. This is His people. So now, verse 7, take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which He did for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hatsor, and into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. And then the Lord sent Jerubbabel, another name for Gideon, and Bedan, another name for Barak, 
Jephthah and Samuel, these are judges. God sent judges and delivered you from the hands of all your enemies all around, so you lived in security. And now here's your situation here, verse 12. When you saw Nahash, king of the sons of Ammon, come against you, you said, No, but a king shall reign over us. Although the Lord your God was your king, now therefore here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And then there's promises for blessings, for obedience, and curses for disobedience. But you've you, you got to catch the significance of this day. This was a great day. Saul was being inaugurated as the king of Israel. And Samuel stands up and rehearses how God had been such an excellent king to them before. They were distressed and God raised up Aaron and Moses. And they're distressed and He raised up Gideon and, and Barak and and Jephthah, and he raised up Samuel himself, and he raised up all these judges, and and more even. He could have told more. He raised these people up time after time, rescuing them from Egypt, and from Sisera, and from the Philistines, and from the Moabites, and from the hands of all of their enemies. This is your king. This is your God who's delivered you all here. And, And Israel, you've rejected Him. You've turned away. See, God was their great hero who had delivered them time and time and time and time again. You could always depend upon God in the clutch. But in this day, they are forsaking their hero. This is like the bulls giving up on Jordan. He's the guy that's led us six championships and now we're giving up on him? Or this is like the Niners giving up on Montana. Do you understand those illustrations, Dirk? Maybe not. Okay, maybe this one does. A little bit, a little bit, huh? Uh, How about this one? This is like England giving up on Churchill. Or like France giving up on Napoleon. Those help, right? Military leaders. You can't give up on them, but they they did. And they got their king. Well, I spent a lot of time here, here in 1 Samuel, really reading a lot about the installation of Saul because the manner in which the king started really paves the way for the way the kingdom ends and how it progresses. It it wasn't good. It wasn't favorable. It wasn't all rejoicing. It was Samuel time after time and time again telling me it's a bad choice, a bad choice, a bad choice, a bad choice. But the will of the people prevailed. Saul's installed as king and his installation sets up all the rest of the kings. Some were good and some were bad. But listen, they all fail in being the true king they need. That was Solomon's constant warning, right? The king you need is God, not an earthly king. In fact, we'll see that every king, some are great. A lot, most of them are very bad, rotten, evil. And none of them are the king that they, they need. You know, what's true of Israel is also for, true for us as well. I, I don't care what president gets installed. Reagan will fail us. Bush will fail us. Clinton will fail us. Obama will fail us. Leaders will fail us. God is the only one who can rule and reign. There will never be peace in a nation. There will never be peace in our hearts until God reigns and rules there. God's the one that's got to be king of a perfect society. Well, here, let's, let's think about Saul's reign. His reign in Israel is not good. It lasted a bit over 40 years. It was filled with defeat. During Saul's reign, the Philistines were always over the Israelites. The reign of Saul filled with sin. In chapter 13, it tells about how Saul defiled the altar, sacrificing, not waiting for Samuel to come. In chapter 15, it tells how how Samuel was disobedient to the Lord, not destroying the Amalekites fully, as God had said. 
was filled with jealousy. Saul was very jealous of David, who had been anointed the next king. Saul went mad, crazy, tried to spear David several times. Even was involved in sorcery, going to the witch at Endor, bringing up Samuel to talk to him. He was obsessed with assassinating David. He's a crazy man, and a crazy man cannot run a country. It just doesn't work. And so Israel got their king. But the king was not a good king. And I can hear almost God in heaven saying what? Told you so. Kids, you ever done that? Parents, you ever done that? Told you so. Because it didn't turn out well. Anyway, the next king is, is David. He reigned about 40 years. Uh, David was a great king. He was a, a man after God's own heart. During his days, Israel knew success and victory. It was through David's reign that Israel obtained peace and safety all around, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. All other kings were all compared with King David. When people talk about the good old days in Israel, they were talking about the days when David reigned because he was a, a great king in Israel. He was a man of faith. You read the Psalms, you see how much he's trusting in God. He was a man of courage. Trust in God to, to fight Goliath. He was a humble man. So we see that in 2 Samuel 7, so we'll get to it in a bit. He won victories for Israel. Right? The, the phrase that was sung was Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. He was a man of principle. He did not retaliate against Saul, even though Saul was trying to kill him. He had several opportunities to kill Saul. He didn't. His heart was wholly devoted to the Lord his God, according to 1 Kings 15:3. Things went well in David's reign. It was through David that Israel was able to obtain peace on all sides. Now we think about David. There's one chapter we need to go to which signifies it better than anyone else. It's in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7 is where we're going to drop down now. By the way, 1 Samuel is about Saul. 2 Samuel is about David. 1 Kings is about Solomon. And then the last half of 1 Kings and 2 Kings are all about the divided kingdom. So, 1 Samuel, we talked about Saul. 2 Samuel, this is David. Now, 2 Samuel 7 is where we're going. How many of you have an idea what takes place in 2 Samuel 7? Some of you do? Okay. Um, if you don't, I would just encourage you, 2 Samuel 7 is a huge cornerstone chapter in all the Bible. I mean, when I say Genesis 12, how many of you know what happened in Genesis 12? I, I preached about it, whatever, six weeks ago. So you got to know, Genesis 12 is the Abrahamic covenant, about 2000 BC. It's like, like the pinnacle, first great promise that God makes to the people of Israel. And from there, even the, the promise that God makes to Abraham flow over in Christ to us, because in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And according to Galatians 3, it says, We who are of faith are children of Abraham. So 2000 BC, that is a great promise. You got to remember that. Genesis 12, Abraham. And then we come up to another great mountain peak in the Bible. It's 1000 B.C. And this is 2 Samuel 7. This is often referred to as the Davidic Covenant. This is where God promises to David that his kingdom is going to last forever. His house, his lineage, his dynasty is going to last forever. <clears throat> Huge passage. So maybe if I ask you next week, 2 Samuel 7 is the Davidic Covenant. Right? What's Genesis 12 again? It's the... Abrahamic covenant, and 2000 B.C., 2 Samuel 7, 1000 B.C., the Davidic covenant. Let me, 
Let me just read for you, beginning in verse 8. The, the context here is that, that David is, is kind of looking out. He looks at himself. He says, hey, I'm living in this house. And, and the tabernacle, though, of God, it, it's, it's just a tabernacle. It's still dwelling in tents. I'm in this house and God is in a tent. Something's wrong here. We need to build a house for God. So he comes to Nathan and says, I want to build a house for God, right? Build a temple. God says, I love this. Uh, verse 5, are you the one who shall build me a house to dwell in? <laughs> are you going to build me a house? Kind of like, you, you can't really do that. But anyway, here's the word that came to David through Nathan. Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." The Lord also declares to you, the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. We've seen the start of the kingdom, and now we see the promise of the kingdom. Okay? This is the second point, the promise of the kingdom. The Davidic covenant starts well and fine with a review of David's life. He says, A young man, you shepherded sheep in the field. You kept watch over the flocks by night. But, but God, God, God took you from the pasture to the palace. He took you from the field to the throne. And rather than shepherding animals, you now are shepherding people as the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's well and good. There's nothing special there. It's just review of history. David said, yeah, yep, you got it right. You're talking to the right guy. That's what you did with me. But then in verse 9, God transitions to His promises in the future. Here's the first promise. I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on earth. In Proverbs 22, verse 1, it says, A good name is to be desired among above riches. Here in verse 9, God isn't promising David a good name. He's promising him a a great name. It's the same promise that God made with Abraham in Genesis 12 too. It's very interesting. I will make your name great. It has to do with reputation. It has to do with prosperity. It has to do with blessing. It has to do with a, a name that rings through history. The fact that we are sitting here, whatever it is, a thousand, three thousand years later, thinking about David means that his name has been great. The fact that we think about Abraham means that his name has been great. It continues through all of time. The next promise comes in verse 10 and 11. 
I'll also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you, the Lord will make a house for you. He's talking here about security and longevity. David was desiring to build a house for the Lord, secure, longevity, secure. And David had set his heart upon entering a building program, attain a permanent structure for the Lord, but God says, listen, you want to make me secure, but I am going to make you secure. You're going to have a place. I'm going to plant my people securely in the land. I will give you a time of rest. I will give you a time of peace. God is promising peace that will come upon Israel. And then God said here in verse 11, He says, I will make a house for you. It's very interesting. The very thing that David was planning to do for God, I'll make a house for him. It's what God said He would do for David. I will make a house for you. You say, well, what does that mean that God's going to make a house for David? One thing it doesn't mean is he's going to build a physical house for David because David already had a house. That was his problem. Verse 2, I dwell in a house of cedar, but I, God doesn't. So I need to make a house for him. And God says, no, I'm going to make a house for you. So, God, I already got a house, God. I'm building a house for you. No, it's, he's talking bigger than that. When he talks about, I'm going to make you a house, he's talking here about a, a dynasty. I'm, I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build your kingdom. I'm going to build, and we'll see this later, particularly in verse 16, I'm going to build your house so it's you and it's after you, it's Solomon, after you, it's Rehoboam, and this house is going to be there. It's going to secure forever. If you look at verse 16, it says this, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever and your throne shall be established. And there it is, just his dynasty. Like the, the offspring of David will be a king forever. The offspring will be king. That's what he's talking about. So he's, it's a dynasty he's going to make for David. Verse 12, when your days are completed, in other words, when you die and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you. And here's this dynasty idea. Who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. This is talking about Solomon. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it goes from David to Solomon as we find out later. And his kingdom is going to be established forever. His throne is. There's enough peace during the days of Solomon. They had enough resources to build a temple. You can't build a temple during time of war. And you can't build a temple when you're poor. And they had both those things. They were rich and they had a time of peace. Solomon was able to build that temple so it came, came to pass. But the promise even was bigger than a promise to build a building as it says in verse 13. It would be a kingdom forever. In other words, the throne of David will continue forever. And then verse 14 again speaks of Solomon. I'll be a father to him and he'll be a son to me. It speaks of God's love and his care for him. And when he commits iniquity, which he did, I will correct him with the rod of men, which God did, and with the strokes of the sons of men, which God did. And we can read about that in 1 Kings. But, here's, here's the thing, is my loving kindness shall not depart from him. It won't depart from Solomon. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. See here, God is anticipating the sin of Solomon. He says, I'm going to discipline him, but I'm not going to reject him. I'm not going to remove him from you. I'm not going to take him away. I'm going to be faithful to him because I'm going to make a house for you that endures forever and ever. 
I'm going to be faithful, David, to you. I'm going to be faithful to your descendants, particularly Solomon. I'm going to be faithful to him following down. And that's the point of verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. It's a huge promise. Okay? So you think about this promise and you say, you know, that there are two ways that this can be fulfilled. The first way is this, is for God forever to provide a descendant to sit on the throne. So it's from David to Solomon, and then after Solomon comes Rehoboam. And then after Rehoboam was Abijah. And Abijah would sit on the throne, and then Asa would sit on the throne. On the throne. Um, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, then Jehoram, and Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoram, Ahaziah, Manathaliah. Um, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah. Who comes next? I forget quite right. After Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. All these, right? And, and continue right on down the line. And, and God continue this line forever. And would we know the genealogy of Zedekiah? We could have said, okay, well, here's the throne now. Here's the, here's the man now. Here's the man now. But that would have to continue forever in order for this promise to take place. That's one way for God, David's throne to continue forever. But there's another way for David's throne to continue forever. It would continue forever if there was a king who lived forever and who reigned forever and who ruled forever. That way, think about it. If you had a king that lived forever, that sat upon the throne, that never died, never passed away, you could have a kingdom which endures forever and ever. And you could have one of David's descendants seated upon the throne forever and ever and ever and ever. Well, obviously the first solution didn't work, okay? because there aren't kings in Israel today. But the second one did take place. And kids, maybe you can help me out. All right? Who is the king who lives forever, who reigns and rules on the throne of David? Who is it again? Who is it? God, particularly I heard over here. It's Jesus. Good job, Ethan. It's Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the passage. He's the King who lives forever. He's the King who reigns forever. Multiple times in the Bible, we read of how Jesus conquered death, never to die again. And countless times in the Bible, we read how He's seated at the right hand of God. The throne, the place where He rules from His throne. And He does rule, Jesus does today, but His rule is not all that it will be. It's already ruling, but it's not yet what it will be. There will be a day when all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. Psalm 110. Today's a day of waiting. But in that day, when His enemies are made a footstool for His feet, He will rule and reign over all the people. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. His throne will be established forever. And, and you know, it's interesting about this. Israel knew of this promise in 2 Samuel 7. They, they knew of this one that would come that would sit upon the throne that would be forever. And, and, and I imagine every time a, a king arose... Is this the one who will live forever? Is this the king? Is this the one? And, and there'd probably be some chatter. Is this the one? Is this the one? They're, they're looking at, in fact, you know when Jesus came, there was looking in anticipation for the Messiah. And, and it came really from, from this passage. It came from other passages. One such one is um, we sing at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of His government or of peace 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is Isaiah prophesying of the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. There's going to be a child born to us. There's going to be a son and the government's on his shoulders and his kingdom and his reign, the increase of it is never end. He's going to rule forever and ever. Of course, that was Jesus. He was a mighty God, eternal Father, come into the flesh, born of us, to dwell among us. He was born the son of David. In fact, you remember the, 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 the constant thing was, well, where's, where's the son of David going to be born? He's going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew that their, their Messiah, they knew their king forever is going to be born in Bethlehem because he was the son of David, and David was. And he's the one who sat upon the throne of David and of his kingdom there be no end. And during his days upon earth, you, of course, you know that he humbled himself to the point of death as we celebrate in the Lord's Supper today, thereby purchasing redemption of those who believe. And because of his humiliation, Philippians 2 says, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the, really, the, the question comes to you this morning, what, what king are you serving? Are you serving the Jesus King on the throne of David, whose kingdom is going to be established forever and ever and ever? Are you serving another king? It's very interesting. A struggle for power oftentimes comes in a, in a country. And people always say, okay, who's going to win? Because I want to ally with that so I can live. Right? You got one, one king coming up here, one other king coming up here, and, and this king is going to conquer this king. Or is this, so you want to get on the side that's going to win, right? Because you know that if you're on the losing side, you're going to destroy. Well, let me tell you, Jesus is going to win. He's on the throne. Best, best to line up under him. Okay? That's just a little inside advice. Best to line up under Jesus. I don't know a lot about the future, but I do know that. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus? Is He your King? Is He your son? Or have you bowed to just what you want? Have you, have you pursued after the things that you desire? The best thing to do is put your desires under Jesus and then you get the best of both worlds. You desire what you want, what you get, what's right. Step out at Christ. Have you submitted to His rule? Have you found refuge in His cross? He's a kind King. He's a gracious King who offers amnesty to all who come to Him. So if you don't, someday you'll be cut off. And you'll be destroyed when he fully establishes his reign. Well, there's the covenant that God establishes with um, David's the promise of the kingdom. And, and it's clear, David wasn't to be that man. He was to die. But also, as good as David was, he was far from perfect. He committed adultery with Bathsheba while in office. You can read about that in Second Samuel 11. He waited a year until he repented. He actually also had Uriah killed in the battlefield. Kept silent for a year. Destroyed him as a man. It killed his reign. He had family problems. Absalom usurped his throne. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15. Near the end of his death, um, 1 Kings chapter 1, we start spilling over as, as David dies. You can read about how Adonijah, even as, as David was dying, was trying to usurp Solomon and, and get the throne for himself. David died a defeated man with his family feuding with each other. See, David wasn't the king that Israel was looking for. Jesus was the king they were looking for. But God let it play out. We've seen the start of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom, and quickly now then the fall of the kingdom. 
And I'm here, I'm not talking about the eternal kingdom of God, I'm talking about the fall of the earthly kingdom of Israel because they, they fell. After David, Solomon came and his story is told in 1 Kings. You can turn over there if you will. Uh, in fact, we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 3. There were high hopes for Solomon. He was the wisest man in the land. If anyone could rule the nation, it would be Solomon. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, wrote 1,000 songs, had wisdom to discourse on all different types of topics. Trees, spices, birds, creeping things, and fish. So great was his wisdom that people came all around to hear his wisdom. From all the kings of the earth had heard about his wisdom, and so they came. And it's not merely that Solomon had earthly wisdom. No, it was God-given wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5 speaks about how God appeared to Solomon in the night. It says, ask what you wish and I'll give you. And Solomon, of course, you know, said, well, I'm just young and I don't know. And it comes to verse 9. He says, so give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Great humility here. He just says, God, give me your wisdom. And of course, you know that God gave him wisdom. It's astonishing the wisdom he got. Verse 11, because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have you asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before, and no one like you shall arise after you. In other words, nobody's been as wise as you before. You can look back at you know history. I don't know, pre Davidic kingdom scholars, but Einstein, no. Newton, no. Kepler, no. You look, all those guys say, none of us come after you. And no one like you shall arise after you. I mean, he's like the once, not the once in a lifetime, the once in mankind wisdom guy. Verse 13, I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I'll prolong your days. If anyone could rule a nation, Solomon could, right? Divine wisdom surpassing anybody who's ever walked the planet. And given riches and honor beyond all his contemporaries. And that's shown in chapter 10 when the queen of Sheba came to visit. You can turn over there. She'd heard about the wisdom of Solomon and said, nah, it's not true. Yeah, you know, she, oh, they're just exaggerations. Let me go and see. And so she went and saw the temple that Solomon built. And she saw the great palace that Solomon had built. And she noticed how all the vessels in Solomon's household were, uh, were of gold. They weren't silver. Do you remember why they weren't silver? Silver wasn't valuable in the days of Solomon because they had so much silver. What's silver? But gold is a thing. So all the vessels were made of gold in the house. And on her trip, she said, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 6, It is a true report which I heard about you, which I heard in my own land, about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men and how blessed are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom and blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. It's interesting, he was probably a pagan believer. Blessing God, because the Lord loved Israel forever. 
Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. In other words, she was blown away by the wisdom of Solomon. She saw everything that Solomon had and said, It is true, you are great and you are to be blessed. And yet we know how Solomon's life ended, right? In the end, he was found wanting. Though Solomon was given everything, he found no satisfaction in his life. Riches didn't satisfy him. Wisdom didn't satisfy him. Military power didn't satisfy him. So he indulged in earthly pleasures. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes to read about how he indulged himself in parks and gardens and vineyards and houses. And he made fruit trees and ponds and bought slaves and had much livestock and, and brought singers so he could have music upon demands. And he had concubines to satisfy his sexual lust. 700 wives and 300 concubines. Eventually, it's led him into idolatry. If you look in 1 Kings 11, verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Astra, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Verse 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Three weeks ago, Darren preached an excellent message on finishing well. Solomon did not finish well. This did not happen. And we read of God's anger in verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Listen, think about it. He's the wisest man in the world, the richest man in the world, everything he wanted he had. God appeared to him twice to talk to him in person and it still wasn't enough to keep him from sin. He continued to pursue his own sin. I ought to show you that even the best, best of earthly leaders is not the leader we need. We need a better one than that. Verse 10, And commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. And, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And you got to see there, he's, he's, gonna, he's going to punish Solomon, but he's going to be faithful to the house. Right? The, the kingdom is going to be torn away, but it's going to continue through the son of Solomon because he made a promise to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, For the sake of my servant David, verse 13, and for the sake of Jerusalem, I have chosen the spot Jerusalem, and Jacob here has shown, chosen. Well, this begins the fall of the kingdom. It continues on in chapter 12. Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And here we're going to pick up a lot of speed. He took over the reign of Israel and rather listening to the counsel of the older and wiser men, he listened to the counsel of the younger who encouraged him to make labor hard. And so he made it hard and the people revolted. And the result was a divided nation. You know, just as in the United States in the 1800s, our nation was divided between slavery in the South and whatever freedom for blacks in the North. Those in the North wanted slaves to be free and those in the South. And there was a war and a conflict. And eventually we resulted in a united nation. Well, unfortunately with Israel, they split. The, the north saw that they couldn't trust Rehoboam and so they departed. And the twelve tribes departed north. There were two tribes, Judah and Simeon in the south. But mainly it was going to be just Judah. And Judah is right where 
Jerusalem is. And that's, that's where um, the throne of David is going to be, right there in Jerusalem. And um, the north seceded from the Union, like they did in the days of the Civil War. This time there wasn't a war. A few murders took place, but pretty much a clean break. Twelve tribes in the north, and Jeroboam, the most awful of all kings. In fact, so often the Old Testament says, who, the sins of Jeroboam, right? They walk in the sins of Jeroboam. The sins of Jeroboam. He was like the, the prodigy or the, the example of sin. He was in the north, pulling people away, setting up false altars, as you read in 1 Kings 12. One nation became two nations. Israel was the north, Judah's in the south. You've got to know this, okay? Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel had ten tribes, and Judah had two tribes in the south. And all, this, all the kings in the north were evil kings. Jeroboam. Nadab, Basha, Elah, Zimri, Tibni, Amri, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Shalom, Menahem, Pekakiah, Pekah, and Hosea. They all were bad. All 20 of the kings were bad. As a result of that, in 722 B.C., the nation of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And let's just look at that quickly. 2 Kings chapter 17. We went to 1 Samuel for Saul, went to 2 Samuel for David, went to 1 Kings for Solomon, and now we're going to see a little bit about the divided kingdom. 2 Kings 17 is where Israel fell. And why did they fall? If you look at verse 7 and following, they fell because of their sin. And they just forsook the Lord. And this just goes on and on about their sin. Why Israel fell is what the title in my Bible says. Verse 7, This came about... Right? What came about? Well, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. The king of Assyria comes, captures Samaria, carried Israel away into exile, and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river that goes in the cities of the Medes. And now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt. There it is, the Exodus again. From under the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. And they had feared other gods. They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Secret sins. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And they burned incense on all the high places the nations did which the Lord carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do these things. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, this is what every prophet and every seer said. They had one message. Repent and find forgiveness or you'll be judged for your rebellion. That's what he says. Turn from your evil ways and keep my statute, my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I set you to through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant which he had made with their fathers and his warnings which he had warned them, and they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the nations which are surrounding them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to be like them. They forsook the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served Baal. And then they made their sons' daughters pass through the fire, even got down to the point of child sacrifice, Moloch worship. 
and practiced divination enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from His sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah in the south. Israel in the north wiped away. Judah in the south, the only tribe. Why was Judah in the south the only tribe remaining? What chapter in the Bible would tell us that Judah was the tribe that had to remain? Remember? Second Samuel 7. God made the promise to keep his house. And so he kept his house right there in Judah. However, things with Judah went the same way as their northern brothers. Yeah, they remained on 150 years longer and they were carried away into exile. It's interesting they weren't destroyed. They were carried away into exile in the Babylon and then deported back. We'll look at the exile next week. The week after that, we'll look at the return. And the exile is going to be just warning you, right? Jeremiah, warning them, warning them what's, what's going to take place, what's going to take place. And they're going to be exiled, taken to Babylon. But the kings of Judah weren't, weren't so good either. Oh, there were some good ones like Asa and Hezekiah who initiated reforms, or like Josiah who instituted, reinstituted the temple worship after many years of neglect. But in the most part, they followed after their own sins, led Judah to do the same, held on for another 150 years, and then were exiled. But God even protected the line of David in Babylon, different than Israel. Well, here's the moral of the story. The moral of the kingdom stage of the Bible is that kings aren't good enough. You need a better king. It's the message of the Bible. Jesus Christ is a perfect king who will rule and reign. Follow his leadership. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would see and marvel the way you work in history, promising the line of David that there would be a, a king for us. And indeed there was Jesus the Messiah. would pray that we would see that, place our hope and our trust in Him. God, if there are, there are knees here that aren't bowed, I plead with you, God, today that you would show them the glory of Jesus. It's Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. God, such is the rule of Jesus. He's the one that sits on the great white throne and from whose presence all of creation flees because He's so powerful. The description of his, Him is amazing. He's clothed in a robe reaching to His feet. He's girded across His chest with a golden sash. His eyes are like flame of fire. His head and His hair are white like white wool. His face is like the sun shining its strength. His feet are like burnished bronze which are made to glow in the fire. He is a, an awesome King and may we bow to Him. God, I thank You that You show us that earthly kings aren't sufficient for us. We need a heavenly King. We have one. And may we go from this place rejoicing in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, great. Before you.